seems like every local in the valley here has a mountain bike. This sport is really exploding. I break the law. I ride an illegal trip. And it's getting away from the cops, the cars, the concrete. Those Afaka is a Chinese down here. Using snowboarders together on a run, you're looking for trouble. You know, they get on skis and they just think they can overcome the world. The more you around, the more you're going to find out. I like to think that death is out of the question. The life starts at 40 miles an hour. You ride the chairlift for two or three weekends and you have to go like climb hills all week just to be even with God, you know? Welcome to Mind the Track with Powbot and Trail Whisperer, ramblings from the skin track in winter, single track in summer, celebrating the core lords and fostering the culture of mountain life in the Sierra Nevada and Great Basin. Today is October 16th, 2023, and you're listening to episode number 23. And by the way, thanks for listening. Please help spread the word. Leave Mind the Track a rating and review and subscribe in Apple and Spotify. Got feedback or a core lord we should chat with? Drop us a line at mindthetrackpodcast at gmail.com, at mindthetrack on Instagram, or just go to our website at mindthetrack.com. Today we are recording from the Powbot family cabin here in beautiful Tahoe Donner. I am the Trail Whisperer, and beside me, as always, is a new nickname that I just came up with, the Pastor of Pow, the one and only Powbot. The ordained minister. The ordained minister of, of Shred. Of Shred. <laughs> yeah. And the, the pastor of love. <laughs> the pastor of love. So uh, this past weekend... Uh, my, yeah. what my, did you, what did you run off and do? Got married. <laughs> Congratulations, buddy. Thank I, thank you, man. It was an and, epic weekend. Yeah, it was. You shouldn't use that term lightly, but it was. I generally don't like to use the word epic, I, but, but man, it was, it, it was. was pretty all time. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. I thank you. Thank you, man. Good job. Dude, you're just an incredible speaker and you know, like I didn't stutter too much. <laughs> you didn't stutter at all. Not at all. Not even a little bit. And, uh, yeah, you had a very, um, heartfelt, thoughtful message for us. And it was, yeah, it was cool. everything that Elizabeth, AKA Swan John and I wanted in a wedding. It was real simple, right? We just, we hiked to the top of a mountain, watched the, the solar eclipse, which was the ring of fire, the annular eclipse. It was peaking over North central Nevada and uh, we, we nailed it. Um, we nailed the location. We nailed the timing. We got lucky with the weather. It was... Uh, you you know, nailed we, a, a really unique assembly of friends. Yeah, we had a, a great cross-section of friends. Just small group, maybe 12, 15 people max. Everybody was... I love the different outfits. We had everything from Matt Talbot in a tuxedo to... to um, you know, people in puff, <laughs> puffy jackets. Francis was wearing a vintage Colorado corduroy suit. Yeah, he looked like he was wearing a, like a black button-down shirt with a black hat and a corduroy suit and this like bolo tie that had a scorpion. It was rad. He, you said he looked like a, a like a cartel, <laughs> like a cartel gangster. gangster. Yeah, yeah, like a like a like a I don't know somewhere in Juarez or some, wherever. You know, like just it was it was a really cool group of people. And uh, it was a great time, and and Elizabeth and I were stoked that you were the the ordained. Oh, thanks, man. It was it was an honor. Yeah. And yeah. and why don't you tell people where it was? We went out to. 
It was in the Rubies, yeah. Ruby Mountains, just south of uh, Elko. Um, I kind of did a bunch of research and figured out where, well, I should say Chris Rudy, my, our, our good friend and an avid listener, he actually was really a, a big help. He, he did a bunch of research on the optimal spot. You guys nailed the spot. Yeah. It yeah, really was a cool spot to watch that eclipse from. Yeah. I went out there three weeks ago and did a quick hit overnighter and, uh, scoped it out and, um, yeah, found the spot, man. It was just granite playground of giant rocks and the views were insane in all directions yeah the view i kept looking over at at as much as i was looking at the eclipse i kept looking at pearl peak because that had a oh it looks skew very skew very very tempting north face to it yes it does and it had a bunch of snip fresh snow on it too yeah, it was so freshly you could coated see where white. the lines were yeah well amazing weekend yeah it was an amazing nice. weekend yeah, maybe we'll dive in a, in a little bit more of the details around the weekend in the future. Yeah, let's. I think we should have a, a, a catch up episode because I think we need to break down a lot of the. We've had a ton of people reaching out to us and giving us input. Yeah, and I think we need to get into some of that, and we can sure. talk about that weekend a little bit more, and maybe even we did get a short ride in on Sunday. Yes, that yeah. was quite fun. Yeah, well, so we can break that down and and share with the listeners some some fun things that happened on your wedding weekend. Yeah, we've been getting a lot of great feedback from episode 21, uh, the fall episode where we got a little ranty. <laughs> it seems like people like the, the ass. Bring, the, bring out the ass the rant. The ass got a little, the ass rants. I think we're going to start a new segment called Ass Rants, and I'm just going to go off on a topic. And I love it. I'm going to I'm gonna come up with one talk, topic every episode. <laughs> just let you run with it. Well, we're, working, I, we're working on a call-in line. So there, here's another oh, yeah, thing there we that we're going to work on. We're going we're gonna to get this core lord call-in. And we're gonna want we're gonna have people call in and leave a voicemail about whatever you want to talk about, and I will play it on the show. And I think that would be hilarious. I think we'd get some great input and some fun topics to talk about. I'm in on it. One eight hundred core lord. <laughs> we got to get that number. <laughs> well, speaking of core lords, yes, let's get into this episode. Yes, and this again, this was a recommendation to us from a listener. Scott Kessler. From Scott Kessler. Yep. And we went to a book reading slash sort of synopsis, I guess, with this author. And I was a I I had heard of her yep. and knew of her, but never really realized the scope of, of what she had done and what she had overcome. Yeah. And the sort of coreness of 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 everything that she represents and does and did and wrote about. So let's get into that one. Yeah. Yeah, so our our guest this week, um, I hope I don't screw her last name up again. Did you get it right? Alenka Vrechik, I think. I, anyway, we, I say it right. I say it wrong, and then I say it right after she corrects me. So, But Alenka, we'll just call her Alenka V. Alenka V. <laughs> Alenka V. Um, Alenka, her book is called She Rides. What's the subtitle there? Chasing Dreams Across, Across California and Mexico. It's an, an exceptionally well-written book uh, about her journey, 2,500-mile journey on a mountain bike from Lake Tahoe, her house in Tahoe City, uh, to the tip of Baja where they have a mm. little property down there. Door-to-door. Door-to-door. And she was 53 years old when she did this? 54 years 54 old, 54 I think, years when old. she did it. Um, and had just come off of breast cancer yep. and a lot of other colon cancer and a lot of other issues and, and trials and tribulations in life. And she yep. just was not wanting all that to define her and picked up and grabbed her bike and rode door to door. Tahoe yep. to Baja. 
and then wrote a book about it. She's never written a book before. This was her first book. And I just, I was really, I was blown away. I was impressed. Like Me the too. writing is excellent. It I love re- the book. read really well. And I, I, and of course I've read, I, I bring it up a little bit when we, when we chat with her, but I, you know, I had read all of the great adventure climbing books mm-hmm. in my twenties and early thirties. And, and this is right in there with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a great tale. Yep. It's a great tale. And there's a lot of insight, a lot of insight, a lot of detail, um, a lot of inspira- uh, inspirational, I think, um, you know, concepts and themes and ideas that you can take away from this book. And I think yep. it, it goes beyond just riding a bike. Like she mentions, you know, it's about your personal life journey and doing things and, and getting out there and, and, uh, finding, finding strength within yourself, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Um, but you know, here we are talking about her book. We had, we just had her here for an hour and a half, so we should probably yeah, just let her talk about it. Let's her get book. into it. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely love, love this conversation. This is a really deep and interesting and entertaining discussion, uh, with Alenka. So without further ado, enjoy our interview with Alenka V. Okay. We're here with Alenka Vrek. Is that right? Vrek? Vrechik. Vrechik. I totally screwed that up right out of the gate. I was going to ask before we started recording, then I'm like, no, I'm going to see if I get it right or if I totally butcher it. And I butchered it. I could be a wreck. Vrechik. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. Okay. And like a Vrechik. Very good. You got a good accent. I got a little bit of German. I know it's not Slovenian. Is it Slovenian? Yes. Is is that the dialect? Uh, It's a Slovenian language. Yeah. It's a separate language. Yeah. You're from Slovenia originally? I am. Yep. And what year did you move to the Tahoe? Did you come straight to Tahoe from there? Uh, pretty much. Just uh, was going to go visit some relatives in New York. By the time I bought my ticket to fly through New York, they were not there. So I lived in an artist's loft in Soho. And that was a whole different experience for a girl <laughs> <laughs> from where I came from. It was uh, wild uh, I love New York, but I'm not a city person. So I came to Tahoe. It was my, my plan. And that was, was the plan, to, was Tahoe? Was, it absolutely was. Okay. Yeah, I was in college. I was uh, a junior in college. And my roommate and I, we were originally going to go to um, Whistler in Blackcomb. Didn't get the visas for that. And then I ended up getting a visa by myself. And... Uh, a friend of a friend told me about Squaw, and I started looking at it. I was like, yeah, that's that's where I want to be. So, yeah. You just saw a picture of the lake, or you saw a picture of... You know, it was really interesting. Palisades or something? Or? I, th- I really thought that the uh, ad was very clever. And they should run that kind of an ad again. There was... It's, it was in a ski magazine, in a European ski magazine. Um, and it was a lake. There was a cowboy on a horse. And there were girls skiing in the bikinis. It was probably... <laughs> classic, classic squaw. <laughs> I bet it was Debbie Dotton no, anyway. But, and I think there was a windsurfer on the lake as well. And I was a windsurfer. Uh-huh. And skiing in bikinis. It's like, wow, we don't do that in Europe. 
I should go check that out. It's, it also sounds like an ad for the, the hot dog movie. <laughs> yeah. It does, does it? Yeah. I think that movie got a lot of people to move, move to Squaw and Tahoe as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I first saw Hot Dog when, when I was maybe 10 years old. I didn't even realize it was Squaw Valley or anything, you know. And then later as an adult, I'm like, oh, man, I know this place. I recognize these spots. So that's cool that you found it. What year did you move here in the early 90s? 85. 85. Okay. Wow. The winter of, I came for Thanksgiving of 84. So it was winter of 84, 85. Okay. And you were 21? I was not. I couldn't go into the bars. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I could care less. But everybody's like, oh, we're going to get you a fake ID. I'm going, I don't care. I've been in the bars since I was 16. <laughs> it's <laughs> not a big deal. <laughs> it was really not a big deal to me. <laughs> I was really more into climbing and uh, skiing at that time anyway. I've never been a big bar person yeah yeah so like that that era of people moving to ski towns has always sort of fascinated me because you your generation was sort of like almost the first ones to sort of take it and and run with it uh you know there was the i think a warren miller film sort of inspired that and there was that generation of people that you know took ken kesey's words of tuning in and turning on and dropping out but you did it in a different way. Like you, you, you focused on lifestyle, you focused on skiing and climbing and, and you were able to make a life for yourself here in Tahoe. Uh, like, what was it like then? Like, what were some of the challenges and, and like how, you know, what, what were the challenges on getting on your feet in Tahoe when you were in your late teens and early twenties back then? Or did it just sort of happen easy? Well, the the Carville family who I came to stay with originally, um, they were super helpful. I stayed with them for about a week and they helped me find a place mm -hmm. that I rented in Alpine Meadows uh, with a bunch of ski racers. Um, so I shared a room with another girl and that didn't go over too well. Um, and unfortunately, Unfortunately, one of the roommates that we had broke his leg um, and I took over his room, so at least I didn't have to have a roommate. Um, my budget was $2 a day. That's how much money I was able to spend on food. And, uh, and what was rent? Do you remember? I, I believe then? I paid for a shared room, which, you know, even today that it sounds quite a lot of money for, for how much money we were. It was like shared room was 350 a month. Okay. Um, and for me, that was a lot of money. I came with $800 in my pocket. That was, and I worked my butt off for quite a while to have that extra money mm -hmm. where I grew up. You know, it wasn't exactly easy to make money. And I didn't want to ask my parents to help. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to do it all by myself. <laughs> that's what I thought. And, um, and were you able to just fall right into work? Like, I mean, that's the kids nowadays, they can get work, but they just can't get anywhere to live. Right. Uh, but um, where did you, where, where did you, what did you get into right away then? I, so originally what I really wanted to do was to come teach skiing. Uh, I already had a certification. Uh, I was a certified instructor from back home. Um, 
because I ski racing was my background. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got a certification, and it's pretty common that a lot of the students from my country they would go to teach skiing somewhere in Europe. I really wanted to learn English better um, or improve my my language skills, so I wanted to go to an English-speaking country. Hence, it was Canada first, but then the whole thing worked out with coming here to Tahoe. And uh, I got a job at Ski Check for Tom O'Neill um, and uh, bussing tables at uh, River Ranch, hmm. um, which was, that was a wild experience because that was still kind of in the era where... Uh, that place was I, I, there's things that I did not understand what were really going <laughs> on <laughs> um, the buzz boys at the end of the day at the end of the night were really not capable of doing too much so I was running around cleaning everybody's table there was a lot of drugs going on from that place at that time so, sounds like a good time <laughs> it's a good time <laughs> And I, I was very naive about that stuff. I grew up in a very small town um, in Slovenia, and uh, I've never been exposed to any no, of that no. stuff. But you were here to ski. I was definitely yeah. here to ski. And tell us a little bit about that era from your perspective. Like, you know, I came onto the, the squaw scene in the late 80s, and I'll never forget the first day I ever saw Scott Schmidt come over the roll on Headwall. And it was a wind buff day, and he did like three turns down Headwall. And it's, it, it resonated with me and I was like, oh, that's how you do it. But from, from your, from your take on it, like, what was it like skiing squad in those days? And, and tell us some stories about those days. Well, very quickly, I got to know those guys, mm-hmm. um, Scott Schmidt, uh, Mike Slattery, Tommy Day, um, and they kind of grabbed me out of the ski line and took me out skiing, you know, and jumping off things that I was like, why would you be jumping off things? But that was, that was another new thing. I, I did do a lot of backcountry skiing, even when I was still in the Mm -hmm. Alps back home. And we were picking a lot of the, uh, steep runs, but jumping was a totally new experience. And, uh, Tommy Day was leaving to go to Europe. I believe he went to Chamonix that first winter and I took over his room, uh, on Tiger Tail in Squaw. Um, it was a very cold room. I had to sleep with my gloves and my hat on (laughs) 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 and I, and my down jacket, um, but, you know, that's what you did. You wanted to be here and you wanted to ski and you wanted to be a part of that, you know, yeah. cool culture. And uh, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And snow. When I told my parents that I was skiing in a sweater in January, I told them, my dad said, you're not coming home, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. Europe is a That's lot a unique colder. thing about Tahoe, eh? When you come from Europe, like the just the amount of snow that we get, and and yes, there's Sierra cement, 
but there's also very good days. And then there's a whole bunch of sun. But the snow here, even when we have that Sierra cement, it dries out so quickly. Yeah. yeah. You go to those northern exposures and, you know, it's just, it turns into packed powder the next day. It's, that was my experience. And when people call for icy conditions here, I just laugh at them. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up on the East Coast, so. Yeah, that's ice. That's ice. Yeah. Yeah. Here is not ice. When you can see the old groomer track in the ice, (laughs) frozen, you know it's ice. Yeah. Occasionally, though, like when we do have an icy day here and I go and ski, it's a quick reminder of how crappy I actually am as a skier. Because I'm like, I'm a good, I'm a decent skier in good conditions. But then you put me in New England conditions and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not that good of a skier in bad conditions because I'm just... I don't do it anymore, right? Like, yeah. you have to do it to know how to be good at it. What were the conditions like then in the places where you grew up skiing in, in Slovenia? Well, you know, it, it depends. Obviously, we had some awesome days, and we had powder days, and we had good days. But we also had, you know, see the grass through the ice okay. days. And race, usually they would make the race courses, you know, really solid uh, and firm which is yeah. not necessarily fun and no but it gives you fundamentals it does it does and when i was coaching skiing and teaching skiing i was kind of a drill meister i i wanted my kids to have good fundamentals mm-hmm. as well so uh and other than skiing you were i i pick up in your book that you also were into alpinism a little bit and climbing and once i got done with my so-called ski ski career ski racing career um and um i had a boyfriend who was a climber but uh ski mountaineering and alpine type of climbing alpine approaches Mm -hmm. was very much the the thing there where i grew up uh it has a long-standing tradition uh slovenian alps are beautiful um even though that elevation is not very high they are challenging mountains and it's a really good playground for climbing and i also grew up in kind of the golden era of slovenian Mm -hmm. alpinism and i was mesmerized with what was going on who were some of the climbers that inspired you well you remember one of the local climbers that uh, i really looked up to was nate zaplotnik whom i also um, quote in the book Um, and he was a very unique climber but i i think why a lot of us who looked up to him uh he was an amazing writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He had written a book. Uh, he was very much a dreamer, uh, and um, so. And then you know there was the next generation of the younger climbers um, who also would come to climb in Yosemite. So a lot of that style of climbing really attracted them. But uh, it was more of a mixed style alpine style climbing um of mixed terrain that so it's interesting that you mentioned that that climber was was a writer because it was one of the first things that i picked up in your book was that it it reminded me of uh tasker and boardman in their book uh Mm. and it and it reminded me of into thin air a little bit and it reminded me of uh reinhold messner's book 
and just the your your ability to sort of capture the, those moments when you're adventuring that are sort of hard to put into words but but people who write those style of that style of book like you, you, they make an attempt at it and you did that for me at least and I, I'm, I'm curious if you you know were inspired by those books I pretty much probably read every Reinhold Meissner book and uh-huh. okay I like his philosophy um, uh, besides that obviously he's an icon in the world of yeah. alpine climbing and first ascents and inspiration um, to many a, a young climber but he was also a philosopher and a big environmentalist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, so there's he's a whole person and I look at that you know climbing also branched into more of a sport climbing later and but the original climbing um, philosophy is you know it's a whole person um, and I like the whole person approach to anything that we do in mm-hmm. life uh, if you're a mountain biker same thing it's not just about mountain biking it's about a whole approach to yeah. to life philosophy to why we live here why we live yep, in Tahoe yep, yep. it's it's a lifestyle um, and I was just I think extraordinarily fortunate and lucky to have grown up where I did um, because that shaped me but I also grew up in a very active family especially with my father there was not a day that we were not out in the woods on the trails and in the mountains and mountains have given me personally so much um, and, you know, I, I write about it when I, when I, when I got sick, um, it, it's even, you know, whatever you go through in life. And I often feel bad for people that don't have that physical world as an outlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you just feel crappy and, you know, we all have bad days and, you know, bad periods of your life and, you know, you go on a bike ride and you immediately feel better. You go on a run or a hike. And I think people who don't have that to fall back on, yep. I think life is a lot more difficult. I agree with you on that. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, th- I think though that those people then though tune in <clears throat> to folks like yourself and maybe Kurt and I and other people that do that daily meditation and then we share it. And that's, and that was something I picked up in your book right away. And that, or that's why it reminded me of those great, other great adventure novels or, you know, tales of adventure. And that, you know, as I read your book, I was sort of thinking about like, you know, what it was a chicken and egg thing. Like what came first? Like, is it, is it the drive? of you as a young kid and even you as an adult to go out and do these adventures? Like, did that come first or, you know, did the need to do that come first? And I can't uh, even figure that out myself, to yeah. be honest. Um, but it made me think about it. And, yeah. and I, and I think that, 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 you know, whether, whether we're, you know, inspired to go look around that next corner, like, you know, why is that? But by doing it, it's li- you live a f- more fulfilling life and then you end up being able to share that 
and whatever it is you glean from that experience, you get to share it. And, uh, and I think that maybe those people, I feel bad for those people too, but I also know that that's their own, you know, that's their own path. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I'm glad you picked that up in the book too. That makes me very happy. And I think it is the combination of both. I was probably, I was actually a very sickly child, which I didn't even mm. talk about in my book because I didn't want people to think that there's all these things that are wrong with me. <laughs> it's like, no, what other, what other crap did she go through? Um, and uh, You established that you had a mountain of things to overcome oh, pretty well. Yeah. yeah, but that's one of the yeah. great things. Yeah, that's one of the great things about your book, though, is that like someone told me once that if you if you took all your problems and dumped them on a table, and then we all did that, you would probably still pick up your own problems. But I think it's more like what you actually then how you hold them. Yeah, right. And and you know, you had an, an immense amount of tragedy and problems in your life, but you, you held it well. And, and then, and then did something that, you know, helped you hold them. And I think uh, it's my main purpose with the book too, is we all have things. There's not a person in the world that doesn't have issues of any kind of stuff. Do you yeah. focus on that or do you focus on moving on and rebuilding the life, rebuilding your identity, you're, you're rebuilding your relationships with people that you have and not hold on to the past in a negative way. But, and I think the bike ride for me served as kind of moving on. It, it just had that, okay, you got to move on and mm -hmm. on the bike, even walking, you can go back <laughs> and you can walk backwards on the bike. It's always forwards. You always oh, go forward. Yeah, that's interesting. an interesting concept. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. What made you like, cause you came from an alpinism and skiing background, um, and probably had big aspirations and dreams to do things on the snow. What made you want to ride a bike for 2,500 miles? And at what point in your life, I mean, did you have this as like a life goal when you were young or did this thing kind of come about as you were later in your life after you had a family? Both. Uh -huh. um, I did a, when I was in college, I did a quick, you know, just a few days um, crossing my country of Slovenia on the back roads and I wasn't prepared at all, but that's how I do a lot of things in life. I just kind of go for it. Um, and I loved it. I loved being spontaneous. I loved, you know, spending nights in the barns and um, stopping and eating wherever your heart desires or wherever you can. And people fed me and that was kind of the time also. So I, I would say that was in the 70s where um, long distance cycling was becoming popular in, in and at least in Europe. Um, there was this guy, Tomo Krijnar, who rode around the world for seven years. Um, and I also happened to have a uh, gym teacher um, in, in high school who rode, uh, through, he went down to, you know, through Yugoslavia on a coast, 
on Croatia and, and went to uh, Greece and Turkey and Syria and Iraq, Iran. And wow. he came back and showed us the slideshow. And I just kind of wanted to pack it up right there and then and <laughs> ride around the world is obviously... How old are you? Well, at that time, I was 17. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, at that time, I was already really into climbing. And, um, you know, I really admired my parents. They let me, you know, I come home on the weekends from college. And um, I traversed the Alps by myself when I was 17. Um, and I think it takes a certain courage to let, to, to know that you're, to have faith in the ability of your kids and knowing how good and constructive that is for them. Um, and, um, yeah, I had a, amazing parents and they, they always had faith in me. Either that or they knew that if they were going to try to stop me, I would do it anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they probably just didn't want to fight. Well, and it sounds like to your family and your particularly what you mentioned, your father had you in the, in the outdoors since you were uh, first born pretty much. It sounds like, so he probably kind of knew this was coming, right? Like she's going to be uh, an adventure. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't find me at home. You know, we didn't really have TV anyway, so we never watched TV. Yeah, uh, we did a lot of reading, um, playing cards and stuff. But uh, whenever we could, my brother and I were terrorizing the the neighborhood and the woods, and so we we spent a lot of time outdoors. That was our place, even if we were just at home, you know, in front of our building playing soccer with other kids it was always exploring um but it was also a good combination we were both my brother and I grew up ski racing but that was a privilege for us we knew that schoolwork was definitely first yeah and that was our motivation you know we had to have decent grades so that we were able to ski did you have uh, a track uh I don't know like a an interest or career path or of any sort when you were going to school that you maybe wanted to do as an adult? I did. Yeah. I wanted to be a shepherd. A shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> I think pretty much that was the only aspiration <laughs> that I had. Hey, it was in the mountains. <laughs> That's why <laughs> I wanted to live in the mountains and be, uh, you know, like a mountain hut caretaker and shepherd. That was a, my romantic dream. I, my dad wasn't too excited about that. <laughs> did you go to college or did you just do your basic schooling and then you were off to Tahoe and skiing and working? No, I was a junior in college. I studied phys ed. Okay. Yes. Yep. So okay. the... It was relatable. The, the backup plan <laughs> was to relatable. be a phys ed she'd be a, she'd be a gym teacher <laughs> taking kids up into the mountains to sheep herd. Like, I'm going to show you how to sheep herd today. We're going to run after... Well, being a sheep herder, though, <laughs> you would have been alone. I love with, being alone with your sheep, and that's so. That's let's talk about that a little bit because yeah. the the solo aspect of your trip is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, you you rode solo for over twenty five hundred miles. It was fifty nine days, and there's something very empowering and something sort of that you learn about yourself on a on a good solo. 
and, and you write about it very eloquently as well. And so from your perspective, like what, what was the most, the, the thing that you learned the most, I guess, about yourself doing that long of a solo and having those conversations with yourself, uh, because you definitely had a lot of, had a bunch of conversations with your bike. (laughs) <laughs> the beast yes, the beast yeah and you had conversations with your water bottles and your gear <laughs> and, and i know how that goes but that the, that ongoing dialogue that you have in your own head when you're when you're having a big solo i do big solos every year in the in the high sierra you know multiple days up to a week and when you emerge from those you, you've basically had a conversation with yourself the whole time uh and and there's something very powerful about that and i'm curious for from your point like what what did you walk away from with from a two month solo. I think in that lies the biggest power, I think, to how you view yourself. Um, and because you do spend so much time with yourself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think one of the biggest advantages is that, uh, and I was really hungry for that, um, not to have to, make decisions with anybody else. You didn't have to compromise. Mm -hmm. I feel when we live our lives the way we live them, obviously with our families and with our partners, with our kids and everything else around me, there's constant compromise. There's nothing wrong with that Mm -hmm. in life as long as you don't compromise who you are. Yeah. And relationships are supposed to be fulfilling and the other thing is that you, I mean, you do it at your own pace, and I really like that. And I tend to push myself harder and longer, it seems like it, when I'm by myself. And I had absolutely nobody to complain to. But <laughs> yourself. I Did you complain to that. yourself at all, ever? Um, I'm, I'm sure I had some <laughs> choice words for myself. You idiot, why did you do this for probably a few times a day when, when you're really tired or cold and you know, whatever. Um, do you talk to yourself? Not so much out loud. Like if you were like riding your bike and a stranger just kind of like came across you without you knowing, would they think this crazy woman's talking to herself? Cause that would be me. I'd be fully talking to myself. I know I would be. Yeah. And the, the further, down the road you go on your trip, yeah. the more you talk yeah. to yourself. <laughs> yeah, you you become like, you know, a little crazy for sure. I have a little saying that... At night, particularly, when you're scared. Why at night? Just because you you think talking will scare the animals off? Who knows what's out there at night? Yeah. I think it was more you were more yeah you were more I, I remember reading in your book that you had more concern with people than you did with animals right well I think I trust animals sometimes more than than people in the sense yeah. that an animal unless you corner a bear or you step on a snake or you run over a snake or whatnot it's only going to defend themselves right and with people they might have a different idea. They're predators. There's not. a predatory yeah. aspect yeah. to it. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you know, and this was mentioned several times that uh, you wrote about, like, just along your travels, especially when you got into Mexico and into Baja, people were 
pretty stunned, it seems, when they found out you were riding by yourself. Would you, did you see that a lot? Or were people like surprised that you were solo? Yes, um, in both. And when I was riding through the mountains in California and when I got down to Mexico, um, people were like, even Mexican people was like, really, you're going by yourself as a woman? And I was like, hmm. Maybe they know more than I do. <laughs> Maybe I should listen to somebody. Uh, but on the other hand, um, and I think that's also a difference when you write by yourself. People look at you differently, and they almost feel protective of yeah. you. Yeah, wow, interesting. And are hmm. more helpful. If I was with a guy, they probably wouldn't pay attention to us. Right. She says, oh, she's taken care mm -hmm. of. Yep, Here's yep. a woman Interesting. by herself. I felt more cared for and taken care of than if I was with somebody else. Interesting. And I think that's true for any kind of traveling. Um, you meet more people because you talk to people. You don't talk to each other when you're traveling mm -hmm. with somebody else. You reach out more. Therefore... You know, it's kind of a more open relationship with the world that you have because mm -hmm. you are by yourself. Um, but vice versa, too. It's um, the fear, you know, if we go back to that uh, part, is I would say 99% of the fear is only in our own mind. Right. Yeah. And that 1%, then you're just at the wrong place at the wrong time, unfortunately. But that can happen can around happen the corner anything. here. It doesn't yeah. matter where you are, right. who you're with. I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, use common sense, I will call it. And hopefully most of us have common sense, whatever that means anymore these days. But um, you just don't put yourself out there into situations and... The closer I was to any kind of civilization down in Mexico as well, I would stay in little motels. You know, you don't just... Yeah, what was your percentage of camping to staying in a, like a hotel or something? Um, overall, I'd probably say I camped about 60, 70%. Oh, more than half. Yeah. Nice. I kind of had to take a shower every once in a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Showers yeah. are nice yeah. when you get them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. You, I, I think I probably live from shower to shower. Nothing is this one of the most valuable, simple luxuries in life that I think we all take, take, a, take for granted is a hot shower. And when you don't have it and then you get it after several days, you realize, God, this is a luxury, man. A hot shower. But that's, that's why we do this stuff. Yeah. It's so that you can come back home and you go, oh my God, I'm sleeping in my own bed. Yeah. And oh, Appreciate wow, life. there's there's a shower right there and I can take it and it's totally. hot and it feels good. Yeah. And if you have that every day, you know, we tend to kind of not really appreciate things. If food, yeah. t food tastes better, oh, things man. like, oh, you, yeah. you mentioned that in the book that there's there was points in your ride where you would have this sort of experience where you would tune in and like the colors looked more vivid. The birds sounded better. Like the food tasted better. The sunset was better. Like that happens when you're doing an adventure like you had. And it takes time to feel that way. 
I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, tell us about that a little bit. How it's long awesome. did it take for you to kind of hit that Zen, that Zen spot? I'd say once I started writing in Mexico. In, okay. Yeah. Uh, writing through California was just a really good preparation. It got, it gave me time to get used to all the, uh, stuff that I had all hanging on on my bike. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's funny you say that because when I as I read the book it almost felt like you went on two rides. Like the California part was one ride and then Mexico was a completely different experience. And it happened immediately as I crossed the border hmm. about 15 miles out of Tecate. I took a left in San Francisco uh and hit the dirt road. And it was like everything else fell away. And that's what I was like. I almost felt like that's when my ride started. Um, but and it, like you said, there were two different rides. I'm so glad that I rode through California because I rode through sections I would never had gone to. And it is so incredible, you know, just that whole you know, the area after the Kings Canyon and Kern River mm-hmm. and, you know, all those, it's amazing where people live. So we'll mention so that m- most people who do the, the ride that you did, which is called the Baja Divide, most people just do it from... Tecate. Yeah, from the border yeah. down. From right. San Diego, okay. S- San Diego, but the, they then they ride up to Tecate on the border and, you know, they cross at Tecate yeah. and that's where the Baja Divide starts. But I came down the Sierra Divide, dropped into Tecate, and that's where the Baja Divide starts. Okay. And is the, are those mountains considered part of the Sierra Nevadas, or are they a separate mountain range? Um, it's, it's the Nevadas, it's yeah. The Nevadas. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's okay. just, well, don't quote me on that I have one. To, I'm not sure. I actually am not sure. I, Tom, I have to interject. Uh, when I, I can't remember who it was. The uh, listener said that Sierra Nevada. Oh. Yeah. Sierra Nevada. Yeah. Not, uh, no. he's like, Tom says plural yeah. all the time. It makes my ears curdle. <laughs> oh. Sierra Nevada. Anyway. Yeah. Oh. Just a minor detail. Right. I actually was corrected that even when I was writing a book. I was like, it's not like See, I haven't seen the maps. <laughs> I, 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 I need an editor. <laughs> Everyone needs yeah. an editor. Even the best writers need an editor. For sure. So I, I bring that up, though, because you basically then traverse the entirety of the range, if you think about it, because it starts right here in the Sierra Buttes and uh, goes down. I, I would have to much. ride back about 100 miles back, which is something that I still want to do, is just it? so that I can yeah. say I did the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, Quincy, yeah, yeah. Quincy's pretty much, Quincy, exactly. California is where the Sierra Nevada starts. Yeah, exactly. But you were close enough. You started yeah, in South much. Lake, right? Is that where you started? No, then, I started in Tahoe City from oh, my right. house. Tahoe you started City. in so, your front, front yard. I started in my front yard, right. and the, cool. the working title of uh, She Rides uh, was Riding Door to Door. Because yeah. I wanted to ride from my house in Tahoe to my Palapa in uh, La Ventana in Mexico. To just, again, symbolically moving forward, but symbolically also connecting the points of my life and uh, the, the two homes. And so the running theme, you know, there's a lot of themes that run through the book, but looking for what 
home means to us mm-hmm. is one of the main themes of, of the book. And for somebody like me, who's an immigrant, um, I've always been looking for, for what is the meaning of, of home to me personally, because in so many ways, I don't feel home at home anywhere. And at the same time, it's also very freeing because it's not the physical home. It's what the home means to you, which is when it comes down to it, it's about the people. Mm -hmm. I have a question about that. So in the book, you talk about a story of a man in Mexico that you met. um, Alejandro. Alejandro. Yeah, Yeah, Alejandro, who was content living and working on his ranch, right? And he he didn't really, it seemed like he didn't have to travel to find answers or happiness. He found that, that happiness and those answers kind of on his ranch, working his, his property and his land with his family. Um, in the afterglow of that ride, do you find that you're less inclined to try and seek answers far from home, whatever that may be? Or, or do you find yourself, did Alejandro have an impact on you and, and what you thought about home and what it means? I'm always impressed, and this is what, what I loved about that man, uh, was how aware he was that he was content. A yeah. lot of the times you go to remote places or you know, less developed places in the world, and it seems to be kind of the opposite, that people want to leave the people it's it was my in my case I did the same I wanted to leave I wanted to experience the world I wanted to travel I'm really drawn to people who are aware that they are happy where they are and I think in our western style society we always feel like we have to go somewhere and we have to have an adventure to, and it's not gonna be a big enough adventure unless we go somewhere, you know, really far away where we can find an adventure if we want to, I mean, especially in the environment where we live here in Tahoe, we can find an adventure in our backyard. And I wanted to show that to when I was raising my kids I wanted to show them that very early on that you don't have to always be leaving to go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when I took my son on a, a kayak trip around the lake and we just threw the stuff in a kayak and started paddling and, and let's see what happens. And it was still one of my favorite memories that I have with my son, Tilan. Mm-hmm. It was just in our backyard. We literally walked down to the beach where we lived and we packed up the kayaks and had an amazing adventure. Yeah. Um, but it's, and I see that, you know, with, for example, people who live on the island down to where my parents uh, had a home in Croatia, a second home, um, the older generation of people that that I have met when I was a kid, 
they were just really content living where they lived. And I always kind of had that romantic vision of me living on a ranch or living in, but you know, that's not who we are either. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Alejandro had an amazing impact on me in that sense that he was fine where he was and he was just happy to have his family there. And that's another thing that um, cultures like Mexican culture, for example, the families are super tight and very close mm-hmm. um, and multi-generations of people live on the farm and that's just a normal thing for us and I think we romanticize that a little bit too because um, especially in this country in America people kind of scatter more you know people kids go live far away and uh, when I go back home to Slovenia now I miss that, but at the same time, I think it can be claustrophobic as well. Because mm-hmm. then, you know, you you can't really do. You have all that. The, you have that itch to go. Yeah. How, so, many, how many brothers and sisters did you have? I just have one brother just who's one brother. just a year older than me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we were roommates in college, and then he fell in love and dropped out of school. <laughs> <laughs> but he's still married. They got, he got married when he was twenty. It's a miracle that they're still married, but for some people it definitely worked when they, I mean, they're, they're awesome. Hey, this is Rat Tail Rick with Trash and Treasure on WMTT Hot Country 103. Give us a call. Tell us what you got for sale today. Hey, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing? This uh, Tony Turbo down there in East Sandwich. Hey, I got this uh, big ag knees three-person tent here. Uh, definitely doesn't fit three people. Went camping with the wife. What can I say? She hates camping, so it's for sales, okay? Used only once because I'm a good fella, be honest. It's got a wee-wee stain in it from my old dog, Rocky, okay? 200 bones, it's yours. We'll trade for a decent lawnmower. Call me at one two three four five six seven. All right, Tony Turbo and East Sandwich has a not a three person tent with a wee wee stain for sale. Two hundred dollars or trade for a lawnmower. Ring them up at one two three four five. There's a better way to buy, sell, and rent used outdoor gear. Sendy, a new peer to peer online marketplace backed by Cam Zinc and Travis Rice. Built by athletes for athletes, Sendy is committed to providing the outdoor community with a high quality hub for high quality gear. Sendy provides a safe platform for buying, selling, and renting, making sketchy meetups with shady characters and seedy parking lots a thing of the past. Sendy uses integrated and discounted UPS rates, QR codes, and print-ready labels, shipping anywhere in the U.S., with Canada coming soon. Download the app today for free at the Apple Store, Google Play, or visit sendy.io. Buy it, sell it, rent it, and send it with Sendy, charter partner of Mind the Track. Now. Back to the show. So I'd, I'd like to just add one more thing to the Alejandro conversation, because the, the thing that struck me when you talked about the fact that you had ridden all that distance just to figure out that home is, is where you are content, it made me think of the lyrics from The Grateful Dead, the song Truckin', because that song's all about heading out, trucking, 
and sometimes the light's shining on you and sometimes it's not. And you know, there, you end up getting some, some wisdom learned from all your travels, but then you go home to patch your bones. Oh, and, I like that. And yeah. here, I'll even read the right, the right lyrics to you, but, uh, uh, you get sick of hanging around and you like to travel, get tired of traveling and you want to settle down. I guess they uh, can't revoke yourself for trying. Get out the door and have a look around. And and then the rest of the lyrics are all about just, you know, going out and then coming home. But really what he said, what Jerry was trying to say then is that like you are home while you're trucking. Like that's the gist of that song. And yeah. that's what I, that's kind of what I got out of your, out of that Alejandro lesson was that like, mm. if you're out doing the things that we all love to do, you then realize that you're also at home. And then you can bring that home. But and there's another thing that comes to mind while we're having this conversation. I was able to leave home that to go so far away because I had a very strong, loving, supporting home yeah. that I knew if I wanted to, it was always there for me. That, that was my safety net. Yes, right. Mm. Right. And yep. I think there's a difference if you don't have that grounding, that the roots that that make you strong when things are not so easy in life. And I've always had that with my parents. I I always had a home. I didn't want to fail, and I wanted to prove myself that I can do it on my own. But I had a very strong foundation, and I hope I gave the same thing to my kids. And growing up in Tahoe is a pretty amazing, solid foundation because we have such an amazing community here. Mm -hmm. It is a big family here. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen that over and over. Not that we should just look at our community in those moments when things are tough but when we do need that um family in a greater sense um it's there and it's a unique thing um that that doesn't happen anywhere i mean everywhere else mm -hmm. um i think we live in a very unique world here just a little bit of the tahoe bubble it, it's special and you know it's uh I think we're all in a way here for the same reasons, um, but, and we're all from somewhere else. And I think for that as well, yeah. we kind of watch over each other and after, you know, our kids and, you know, when you're in need, people, people come and it's, it's a good feeling. Yeah. Generally people yeah, yeah. move to Tahoe area for the same reasons yeah, there are very few people who end up in tahoe because there was a job here they came to tahoe because they wanted to be here because they find the job second it's like i'll find work when i get there step one is i want to be there because i want to live there because it's beautiful and it does it meets all the needs for me being outside and i think there's this shared culture and community in that because everyone is here because of how beautiful it is and how you know it's it's incredible mountain culture. And that's really, I think the, the core of it, you know, you, in these bigger cities, people move to bigger cities cause there's a job there 
and there's less connection between a community because the priorities, like my father growing up, like he was always like, well, where are you going to live? And I'm like, and I would tell him, he goes, well, what's there? You can't, what do you kind of job are you going to have? You got to go where the jobs are. I'm like, no, that's not how I'm doing it. That's how you did it. Your generation, my generation is I'll go to where I want to live first. Then I'll figure out the work I'm going to do to be able to live there. And I feel like that's in Tahoe too. You know, a lot of people share that. Absolutely. And I think very few of us actually do what we studied or what we thought we were going to do. You just do anything you can survive with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I came here and I was painting houses. I was hanging off the climbing ropes, you know, off the chimneys and painting houses, did everything that you possibly can. You, I mean, the last thing that I ever thought was bussing tables, but that's what you do. Yeah. And that's, I made a career out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be the best boy, best paid bus boy around. <laughs> Fastest bus boy in the West. Would you do a trip like this again alone or with someone? I would do it alone again. You would? Yeah. Mm. What would you do differently this time around? Was there anything you would do differently? No, I would just go somewhere else. Yeah. yeah okay. I, so yeah, you I, feel like you did a pretty good job your first attempt doing a big ride like that. You kind of figured it out and... Yeah, I, I, I did. I, I think you, just like in, you know, skiing or climbing or anything else, you get the bug. Yeah. And you cover some great mileage on the bike too. It's oh, yeah. just that alone to even... You know, it's, I mean, when you climb 5,000, 6,000 feet vertical and you've covered, you know, 55 miles in a day and you've been on the bike for six, eight, sometimes 10 hours a day, mm-hmm. it, you feel pretty darn proud of yourself. It's like, wow, did I really do that? I mean, if you, even now, if you go, you know, most of the time we ride an hour or two hours that we find in a day, I'm going, wow, how did I stay 10 hours a day on a bike but you got nothing else to do anyway so you might as well writing <laughs> isn't there a certain i mean because I've, I've done a few nothing to the length that you did but um i think the thing that really i love most about uh an adventure by bike is just this simplicity of existing it, it everything like you had mentioned when you crossed into mexico everything else melts away and you turn into just this this organism that functions on eating sleeping riding and you know going to the bathroom every now and again, you know, and it's, it's this cycle of just like looking for a hot shower, simple pleasures. There's not a lot on the schedule except to just bang out the miles and, and you're fueled by what you eat and sleep. And it's a very simple existence. Did you fall into that and enjoy it? And I think that's also why people climb mountains because it is that basic survival. Um, and to what is important and, you know, what are the important things in life definitely is on your mind. Um, and then especially when you are in remote parts of, of the ranchos and where people live and they really are, they just have goats and sheep and cattle out there and they live a very simple life, but there's that light in their eyes and uh, kids are snotty and happy and dirty and you know there's just it's it's a again maybe a bit romanticized way of life because it's not an easy sure life yeah 
But uh, you go, gosh, do I really need that new couch or a dishwasher when I come home? It's like, eh, no, maybe not. (laughs) You know, what is, you know, do I need a brand new car or whatever? Uh, Although I have to admit, you fall back into that pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, you do. (laughs) And I was like, oh. Jeez, did for I forget trip. already? Yeah. <laughs> I said I need to do another 2,500-mile trip to remind myself. Yeah. Did um, I want to talk a little bit about the process of writing the book because I was, like, I was really drawn in by your writing. I, I mean, I know that English isn't your first language, and, uh, and I also heard recently that you became an American citizen. Right? Not that long ago. C- congratulations. Less, less than a month ago. <laughs> congratulations. Thanks. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, I think I, what I really, so I took a lot of uh, workshops and classes and I had editors as well because the book that I wrote was raw. Yeah. Uh, But that's how, it doesn't matter if you're a native speaker or not, you know, there's always going to be the first manuscript is going to be super raw. And then, and then you think, oh, yeah, I'm done. Well, no, that's that's just the beginning. Right. Um, but I feel because I am not, you know, I, I don't have any, you know, writing background as far as the schooling goes. So my writing comes from very deep within. And I think that's my voice. And I think that's hopefully what really shows it translated well yeah, um, for sure but um did you journal on on the ride i did okay i did i actually wrote a blog because uh, i wanted to just uh, keep my family and close friends uh informed so that i didn't have to like talk to i mean i couldn't talk to everybody separately anyway right. i most of the time wrote in the notes uh on my iphone and a lot of the times I would just jot down the thoughts because you got a lot you you have you got a lot of time to think on a bike ride like that. And yeah, yeah. if I didn't write things down right there and then, a lot of the times I wouldn't even get off the bike. I would just kind of hold the bike with my legs and just type in, you know, whatever. You know, at the it, moment. If at that you, moment. Got gotta write gotta have I, that moment. I noticed when I was reading I was like, she she would stop and write down something that ha- happened in that moment because I've like, if you let that moment pass and you try to write about it later, it doesn't come through the same. And I was getting that sense that you yeah. were capturing those moments in the moment, which is awesome. Yeah, it's, you know, you think you will remember. And right. a lot of those moments right. Right. have probably passed me by. Yeah. Uh, but obviously the core of it was there or... You know, in the middle of a night, again, you think, oh, I'll write it down in the morning. It doesn't happen. No, it doesn't it, happen, no. And it's such a great thought. I it's know. It's like, damn. I know, I should have written it down. <laughs> so did a lot of that journaling make its way in, into the book then, eh? Yeah. yeah. Um, I wrote, like I said, I wrote a blog. So the the bike write of the, the book was in a blog form, you know, in a, you know, there's a lot of it. And a lot of the people who were reading my blog were following my ride and they were really anxious if I didn't post for a few days because it's like, wow, is she still alive? 
<laughs> and then people would send me messages that they're reading to each other in bed before they go to bed. I'm going, and that that really was oh, also what, what inspired me to write a book because I got a lot of messages like, "Wow, you got to write a book." I'm going, I don't know how to write a book. I'm not a writer, but uh, then COVID hit and. Oh, so you wrote it during, so it was like the best time to write a book, um, kind of. It really was. It yeah. really was. I mean, I, I had no excuse but not to write it. And right. also the culture changed um, of everything moved online. So I was able to take a lot of workshops with right. amazing writers. Yes. I didn't have to go wow. to a conference, which is very costly. Right. I could right. do a lot of the times From with workshops room. with amazing writers. I was really lucky the timing, you know, it's very serendipitous to how things work out in your life. If you kind of open up your heart to it. Yeah. Um, but the timing was such that uh, when I had the first very kind of rough manuscript written, um, I was able to go to the writers' conference at uh, at the Olympic Valley, um, and I got kind of my first idea to how the whole world of books and publishing really works, mm -hmm. and how difficult it is. Oh yes. Um, and then I also went to the um, travel writing conference at the uh, Book Passage in Corte Madera. And that's when I really met amazing mentors. And, and then COVID hit. And I, but at that time, I had established um, the connections that I needed to get help to really put the book in shape that... I wanted it to be as good as it possibly was. Could it be better? Everything can be better. But, you know, it's it's out there and um, it's me. How did you find the publisher? That's like one of the hardest things to do because a lot of times, first, especially first-time writers, first-book writers, they end up self-publishing because um, like they can't get an agent or representation from a publisher. You publish this and through that, a publishing house, right? Well, it's called She Writes Press and it's a hybrid. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, I wrote so many queries and, yeah. you know, and that was the downside of the COVID part was that the publishing uh, industry just came to a grinding halt. Huh. Uh, even the established writers were not able to publish and New York shut down. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I kept querying, and uh, one of my mentors, uh, Phil Cousinaw, told me about She Writes Press, and he goes, that would be a perfect press for you. Uh, my wife works for Engram, and She Writes Press distributes through books through Engram, which is the largest uh, book distribution company uh, in in the country. Ingram Press. In Ingram Press. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. they're big. It's so it's a it's it it's really the right kind of a uh, publication for the time that it was. Yeah. Um, otherwise you can spend a lot of time in the trenches and the woman who started she writes press worked for big publishing companies in the past and she saw how many books never got published that should have been published yeah. because 
you know, if you're, especially if you're writing a memoir, um, if you are an unknown author or unknown person, everybody talks about, you know, you got to have this platform. Right, right. You got to have million followers on your Instagram. It's like, that's, that's not what I, I, that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. You can either get lucky, right. And just create this amazing like story that gets found by the right person at the right time in the right place. Or yeah, like you said, you have to build a base ahead of time and then you can just kind of pitch it to your own audience and, and be selling right out of the gate. Or you just have to be a really good business person and understand self-publishing and know that you actually have an audience and, and pitch direct to that audience and sell direct to the consumer versus going through like a publisher or in a distributor. So it's, would you say writing and um, the writing of the book was more challenging than doing the ride? I think it's, it was just a different kind of challenge Yeah, because it's, um, you know, obviously it's my first book. I've learned a tremendous amount. Um, and I think at my age to be passionate and to learn anything is just so powerful. Yeah. Um, but, um, I wouldn't do it any differently. Was it difficult? Yes and no, because I I feel like it was really such a rewarding journey, both yeah. of them. Yeah. The yeah. physical journey on the bike, which was obviously not just the physical journey. That was just one one small aspect of it, really. It's just all the reincarnations that you go through when you're when you're on the journey like that. Um, but with writing, it's even that much more rewarding because you can do it anywhere you are and at any time of your life, no matter what state you know you're in. Yeah. So it's it's almost like I'm investing into myself for the future because none of us really know where the future takes us and what gives us. And, you know, we're facing things that we never thought that we would have to face. So it's, it's been rewarding in many ways. Was it difficult? Well, yes and no. If you, if yeah. you, if you love doing what you do, then it's actually not difficult. So are you in the marketing phase of the book right now? Are you like, Doing because we first met you at a, a little uh, uh, book uh, presentation at um, the Nordic XC Center there in Tahoe City. Um, are you going on like book tours and stuff like that? And I have been. Um, I've traveled quite a lot this summer. That's why my writing suffered <laughs> a lot because we were on the road a lot. Yeah. Um, and uh, but we also visited places that. I knew we wanted to go, so I booked um, the towns that we wanted to go to visit where we have friends. Mm -hmm. I had a publicity company mm -hmm. uh, that had run out now. They're, you know, they kind of take you through the publishing date and then a few months after that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I want to do as much as I can to share the book with people and... Uh, a lot of it is now word of mouth and mm -hmm. that that has been going really well because it seems like it's really 
striking striking the chord with people. The response has been good. It's been amazing. Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting. I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm getting notes from people all over the world because a lot of people are reading it in Europe as well, because um, it it is distributed uh, through Amazon in Europe um, and Kindle, and I even had I even received messages from Israel. Wow. And, um, but yeah, it's word of mouth, and um, I think, you know, it's women love it, and I get a lot of um, a lot of messages from men as well that it really kind of inspired them. So that that feels good. Everybody can find themselves. It's not about my right. It's about what we all go through in yeah. life. And how we deal with things, like mm-hmm. you said at the beginning, it's uh, it's, how, it's yeah. how we pick up the pieces, you know, and move on yeah. when when you face certain challenges. You know, a lot of us maybe want to curl up a little bit in the corner sometimes, but you know, I, you you gotta get out of that corner and keep moving. Yep, I'm passing this book on to my wife next because uh, she. Uh, uh, tested positive for BRCA. Oh, I am uh, sorry seven to hear that. years ago. And, but she is now on the other side of everything, but she, uh, you know, uh, and she's totally okay with me talking about this and, uh, you know, maybe she'll be on the show one day, but she, uh, she went through the double mastectomy and then had a hysterectomy all in the last four years. Uh, wow. so she has gone through that process and, uh, the, I thought a lot about her as I read your book. And it, you know your 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 ability to overcome your breast cancer and the way you so eloquently sort of tackle those issues in this book uh, is really well really well done and written well. So well, that yeah. means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah, and, you're welcome. Um, and you know, this is why I said we all have our journeys, and sometimes just knowing that you're not alone out there mm-hmm. going through that and particularly with women and breast cancer, it's scary how many women out there are there. Um, And if I can inspire somebody to just get out and do something, whatever they want to do, whatever, whatever that dream is, that's really what I want it to do. I, you know, we all have stuff and, uh, if I could share my experiences and, um, I want people to say, well, if she could do it, I can do it too. And that you pick that up on in the book. Yeah. It's very inspiring. Yeah. I like it. Did you feel that the bike healed you? Very much so. Um, I think the biggest part that the bike healed me was that it gave me back my confidence and the just the desire to do things and to uh, basically light that fire that I lost because there was there was a lot I mean what but also it gave me strength and confidence to what is still ahead of me with my husband's situation yeah um and I think Jim would also be okay if I talk about that because uh, 
I think we deal with our own problems for our, at least for myself. I'd rather go through it myself than watching somebody that I love suffer. And that's why, you know, I had men, grown men coming to me in tears saying, wow, you know, you really helped me get through my wife's journey mm-hmm. in, in a way that's helped, you know, to get through the tough days. So, um, but with my husband's Parkinson's, it's, there's so much unknown and uncertainty. And that was also why I wanted to go on a ride when I did, because I only had a window of opportunity to do it. And that window was just closing on me. So it's like it was now or never. And that's, you know, a lot of the times, unfortunately, we wait too long to do something that we want to do. I did not want to have a regret. I still felt very fortunate that I was around to be able to do it and that I was hoping that I had the stamina to do it. Um, but I also want to let people know that they shouldn't just wait for something traumatic to happen for that wake up call. You know, it's like, just do it, just go out. And, you know, I think maybe in this community that we live in, it's not so much of an issue because people embrace the life and just chasing money is not the most important and the only thing that we do here. We're here for many reasons, which like having that perfect ski day or ski run, not even a ski day, but like that perfect run, you know, being on the bike or on the water or on the skis on in the snow, whatever we're doing. Um, and, uh, as far as doing something that's a little more crazy or bigger that we always wanted to do, time doesn't go backward and you cannot rewind the clock once, once it's going to such a direction, but you know, it's never too late either. Yeah. Mm, Well said. Uh, Tom, do you, I was going to say we should probably bring this to a close, yeah, but I wanted to there's, see there's so, there's much, so much, there's to, so much to unpack with you. I, know. Uh, I guess the one thing that I, I would like to maybe just jump into quickly and, and uh-huh. uh, about is that you write very well about the flow state. And, and I, 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 I immediately honed in on that because it's something we've been talking about on the show some and your description, if it's okay, I'd just like to read one short passage that you did write on it. Yeah, uh, I think I know which one it is, I hope. I could feel the wind in my face as I leaned forward, scooped low with my shoulders, my elbows tucked in and hidden behind the bags on the front of my handlebars. I rose slightly and moved behind the saddle as far as the attached bags allowed me to, so I could arch my back and have the least possible amount of air resistance. I pressed my knees against the frame of my bike as if I was squeezing the belly of a horse riding tight, giving it direction. The beast and I became one. We were moving at, at our greatest possible speed at that moment. The time-space continuum ceased to exist for a few seemingly endless moments. It was as if I was being sucked into an, into an invisible tunnel. I love that. 
Like I made notes of it and there's a couple other spots that I made notes on, but your, your ability to break down the flow state, uh, it was something that I took note of. And I guess the one question I'd like to ask you is that, you know, as a kid growing up skiing, you experienced flow state, you experienced it in, in Tahoe skiing at Squaw and Alpine, but then you experienced this in your book at 54 years of age, doing a completely different sport. And I'm curious, like, how was your sort of experience with flow state changed or, or morphed over your life? And, and has it, has, have you honed it more? And do you still, do you still chase it as well? I don't think once you've experienced that you ever stop chasing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think as athletes, you know exactly when that state is because really, truly everything falls away. Um, I was coaching skiing for 30 years. Um, I'm also, you know, I, I actually study psychology and sports psychology just through the coaching part and, and teaching other athletes to try to get into that, what we also call the zone. Mm -hmm. um, and it is magical when that happens and uh it's a very fleeting moment too it's like if you miss it yeah it's yeah, gone yeah. you have to pay attention you do have to pay attention but as an athlete you can train yourself to do that um and everybody has some different techniques uh of how to achieve that and uh with uh, how you set yourself up before, let's say, before the start of a ski race or before the start of the big mountain run, what there's certain ways you can do to put yourself into that zone. Um, and for some people, that is to completely tune out and be quiet. For some, you know, athletes, they love to have their tunes and they like to, you know, get into the zone that way. There's different ways, and everybody's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and, you know, climbing is also one of those. I think the sports where you really have to stay on the edge, uh, where it, it's a survival thing, mm -hmm. those, are, those are the kind of sports that you get into the zone because that is your survival. That is, you mm -hmm. have to do that. If you start thinking about, I don't know, what dress you're going to wear to the party while you're doing yeah. that, it's probably not a good idea. Out of necessity, it forces yeah. you to really be in the moment. And I, yeah. you know, when you meditate, obviously you can, you can get yourself into those zones. But for me, the best way to do that is by moving. I like the moving meditation type of aspect of, you know, riding, skiing, climbing. Yep. Or I'm into wing foiling now, and I feel like that's oh, kind that of looks cool. Yeah. It's it's awesome when you're when you're out there and you're going. Cool. Did you learn to foil first with a kite, and then and now a wing, or did you go straight to the wing? I did a lot of. Um, well, I started as a windsurfing, and then windsurfing morphed, and you know, when when kiting 
became, and then mm-hmm. I started to kite foil, but right at that time, um, wing foiling started, and my husband Jim bought wing foiling equipment for himself, and I was like, this looks really stupid, <laughs> because it looked kind of awkward, um, but the minute I got on a foil on the wing, I, I haven't even kite surfed since then. Um, wow. I'm, so that's what you're doing down I'm, in, yeah, in Baja, Baja now. Yeah. Very cool. I absolutely love it. Have you tried an e-foil yet? That's how some people yeah, learn to do not, it. I have not. I have not. We did a Is lot of like, practice behind the boat. We, we foiled behind the boat to get used to, 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 to the being foil. on the foil. Yep. Um, e-foils... Is it like are, e-bikes? Like some people are like, no, I don't e-foil. Are you kidding me? Or is it? <laughs> well, hey, you know, whatever makes you happy. Um, I want to try it and I've been wanting to try it. You know, I obviously it's just I've never really made the time to do it. Uh, but I wouldn't buy my own e-foil because they're expensive they're really to expensive. begin with. They're like an e-bike. They're yeah. 10, 10 and like 10 grand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they look cool. And I, I just... When it's not windy down in Baja, I like to do other things. There's, I probably shouldn't say this loud, but there's amazing mountain biking down there. I hear, yeah, I hear that. Yeah. (laughs) We got amazing trails right behind the house there too. Do you leave a bike down there? Um, We do, but they're usually just for people who come to visit us because they're not, usually we take like our old bikes down there. Um, so you, you drive down, I, we bring our own bikes, you know, if you leave your equipment there, it gets hot during the summer and it doesn't last. It just, the rubber melts, this disintegrates. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, rubber and heat are not friends. Not so much. Yeah. So so speaking of bikes too, what kind of bike were you on when you did your ride? Yeah. I'm curious. A little tech talk here. Well, um, so I just bought a brand new uh, Ibis Mojo 3 when I, okay. at the same time when I was like, I'm going on this right, I'm doing it. And I was advised that that was not the right bike to go on because it's a full suspension and it kind of has its weight. And uh, I'm also a very small person, so my small bike didn't have much room to put the bags and stuff on. Yeah. It was not built for bike packing and was it a 27.5 wheel yeah interesting okay um and i think 2.8 width uh which is so good it was for mid, the sand yeah it, it was, was mid, you were great. riding sort of mid fat tires yeah so ride. you rode the ibis i wrote i wrote the ibis i didn't have money for another bike yeah uh and you know it's just like anything else you can get super techie about oh, yeah. anything but I had to make it work, and I did. And it's a good it, bike. I mean, get out the door with what you got. Tall Wayne, who works. In oh yeah, big Tall Wayne. <laughs> big He's the Tall man. Wayne. Uh, when I I rode my bike when I when I put all the stuff on it down to Olympic Bike Shop, and those guys at Olympic Bike Shops were so awesome. They were so helpful, and uh, um, so. Carl and uh, Big Tall Wayne helped me kind of look at things and make sure that I had the right tools with me because I was riding very remote areas and I had to be very self-sufficient. That was a huge part of it. And uh, 
Wayne said, oh, you're going to have no problems with this bike. You're not even going to have a flat. I bet you a six-pack. I, I had to buy Big Tall Wayne a six-pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned you, you had one flat. I had one flat. So you ran that whole 2,500-mile shot with one chain, one chain ring? Yeah. Wow. But I took care of it. You know, I did. Yeah. I, I trimmed it like like. Like I say, you know, you're trimming the sailboat, you know, you, yeah. you keep, you keep an eye on things and, you know, it's like health. A lot of preventive health went into my bike because I, I, my life depended on So me. you knew how to work on your bike. You know how to fix things if they I, break. I do. You, yeah. can't, you have to. Yeah. And, you know, when I was, um, coaching, uh, um, North Taco Bike Force, um, Allison Donovan and, um, Emily Turner, we started a North Taco Bike Force to uh, coach the kids. Mm -hmm. And a big part of our program was self being self-sufficient out on the trails. So that, you know, I mean, if you're riding around here, if something happens, obviously you can still walk yourself out. I was in areas where I was not yeah. able to walk myself anywhere. Yeah. And even if you walk yourself out, you know, into the village, there's nothing there. <laughs> There's nobody's gonna fix your bike. Yeah. So. Did you have a an like what was your biggest oh shit moment on that trip? When I went over the handlebars a few times. Um, oh shit was when I ran over the big rattlesnake. Oh yeah. Uh, that was oh I I pretty much set some big records. <laughs> you get you know you're tired but your adrenaline it's adrenaline is an amazing thing. He, the energy just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. I, I, I broke some speed records on that one. <laughs> um, running out of water was kind of a little bit slower, oh shit. Yeah. Because uh, that, that was probably one of the most critical parts of my journey where I had 60 miles to go. It was 103 degrees, 105, and then I stopped checking and I had a half a bottle left oh god and i 105. was 105 it was pretty wow. hot yeah. and um i i was saved you know i guess the listeners are gonna have to read a book to know what happened but i was yeah saved. let's we save a little yeah we leave some meat on the bone as tom likes to say you know <laughs> and then there, there was that one incident there was a few incidents um that um were not comfortable at all when I slept with a knife in my hand the whole night. I was going to say, if you had like a shank or like bear spray or something like to, to defend yourself? Um, I did have, I didn't have a bear spray. I had a pepper spray. Yeah. And I used to, often I was so tired that I forgot it on the bike and I didn't bring it into the tent. <laughs> so they could, the assailant could use it on you. <laughs> and I was too lazy and too tired and too cold to go out to get it. I was like, well, you know, I guess I'll take my chances. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't have to use it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were a few old shit moments for sure, but you know, that, that's all, it's, it's all fun and games when it's over, when you, when you get to the other side of things. And your bags and stuff, like you had it pretty dialed from the, the get go or was there, were there modifications and changes and, and things, alterations through the course of the trip 
to make it better or if things were fault were things not i mean it sounds like you had carl and big tall wayne to help you dial it so was it pretty dialed from the from the start line yes and no i used a luckily i brought a lot of zip ties with me <laughs> ski straps did you have ski straps i had the um you know the rubber one the uh Volley straps. Volley straps. Yeah, those yeah. are the yeah. best. They are the best. Those are by far the you best. Have to have different those. sizes, you have different to have lengths those. Yeah. for sure. Yeah. That was my saving grace yeah. for sure. Um, I had a little wonky water bottle system in the back of the bike just because of the way the mountain bike is constructed. Yeah. Um, so it was really difficult to mount the water bottles on the back. I had a, a lot of weight in the front of my bike too much because you know i had the on the front forks i had big you know nalgene bottles mounted and mm. uh, a lot of the weight like all my camping gear and all my food gear was on the front of the bike mm -hmm. i had a, a seat pack which prevented my uh, seat dropper to to work which was unfortunate because there were some really rough trails yeah, yeah. Uh, out there but I got used to that um, eventually, obviously, because we didn't used to ride with <laughs> seat droppers. <laughs> yep. Right. Um, I did miss that at the beginning, for sure. You could, have saved a, you could have saved a pound of weight if you would have just put a regular seat post on it, you know? Well, too much <laughs> weight. There's, there's the gearhead. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was one thought. But, I, yeah. I think it's super inspiring that you just, you, ro you rode your normal Enduro, like yeah, around much. the neighborhood enduro bikes. So yeah. I mean, anyone with an enduro bike can just leave their house and ride 2,500 miles. You can. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. yeah, for sure. People ride, you know, like I said, my uh, co-patriot uh, Tomo Krishnar, who, who rode the bike around the world, he rode it on like a dorky bike. You know, there, it had, it was, we were all... You know, you just make it work. Yeah, you run you, what you, you run. You make it work. And yeah. Ibis is a solid bike. I still ride that bike. Oh, it's a I great still bike. ride the the Beast, and it's yeah. I was going to ask, is the Beast still still around? The Beast is still around. Yeah, cool. It's awesome. Yeah, it's um, solid. Have you met Scott Nickel, the founder of Ibis? He lives here in Tahoe Donner, and he's a big Nordic Nordork. I I keep hearing about it, and I'm ready for a new bike. I was going to send a link to this pod to Scott. After, yeah, he would love after to meet we you. It. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's, maybe uh, that's the ride we go on. We were supposed to ride today and my work work situation kind of got in the way. So maybe maybe we'll go for a ride with Scott on the Beast. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. 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 I think he would be pretty impressed. I even, uh, part of the frame broke and uh, I had it fixed down in Baja. The carbon? Yeah, the carbon. No kidding. Cracked. Wow. Yeah, but it's fixed. It's It went to the hospital and... and <laughs> On the trip? No. Oh. Uh, after the trip. After the trip. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Nice. It's like uh, one of the things that I write about in the book, too, is the uh, necessity is the, the, mother, m of the mother of reinvention. Oh, not invention, go. because when okay. you have to fix shit on the road, you are very creative. <laughs> Your inner MacGyver comes out. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and yeah, you got to, you know, duct tape and zip ties and, you know, little sticks in between and, yeah. you know, 
it's it goes a long ways. Yeah. But I, I think I grew up, I was always tinkering with things. I was one of those kids. I like being alone. <laughs> well, Alenka, we have to bring this episode to a close. But before we do, we always love to ask our listeners. The name of this podcast is Mind the Track. Love and it. when you hear that term, Mind the Track, what do you think of? I think it's a perfect marriage of the mind and the track and taking care of your mind, taking care of our, our environment and everything that we do in this environment. And uh, it just, when I heard of the podcast name, it made a lot of sense. I think you guys are doing the right thing because you are bringing the awareness to not just, yeah, we all like to go out writing, but there's a lot that goes into building and maintenance of the trails. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of culture that we all have to be aware of to why we are out there. Um, I mean, even, you know, a lot of the people don't even know the rules of engagement out there on the rides and you know especially now that you know some of the rides are hybrid um e-bike and um regular mountain bike rides and we all have to watch for each other so that we don't get hurt and um one of the things that we had in our uh mountain bike program with the kids too is we did the end of the season downyville uh, ride with the kids and we did the work on the trails there yeah. so that the kids also oh the trails are not just here because they're here the trails are here because people build them and maintain them and nice and Good. now that this mountain bike community is becoming such an amazing community with trails i cannot wait to ride around the lake yeah. That is going to be so incredibly awesome. So there's a lot of things that go into the culture that we are all here for. And I think if we all learn more, and I've already learned more just by listening to, to your podcast, to be honest. So, cool. Great. Thank yeah. you. I think you guys are doing a great job. Thank you so Thanks. much. Keep minding the track. That's right. Keep <laughs> minding the track. We'll, well, keep, we'll keep up the work and, and, and you keep riding. I will and keep writing. Writing, writing and, and writing. And writing, yeah. So, Alenka, uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, social media, or your website or, website, or even your blog or your book? How do people get in contact with you or start following you or buy your book? If you can spell my name, um, well, the book is called She Rides Chasing Dreams Across California and Mexico. Uh, my name, Alenka Vricek, also stands for my uh, website, dot com. How do you spell your name? It's A-L-E-N-K-A-V is a Victor, R-E-C-E-K dot com. It's a bit of a tongue, you, tongue twister. <laughs> are you on Insta, Instagram? I, I am Motherland. That was my nickname. Motherland? Motherland. It wasn't my nickname. That was, your, was, that was your trail name? Uh, 
or coaching oh you're coaching then yeah mother okay woman. yeah i was mothership <laughs> oh, my yeah. radio call was mothership so the, the kids called me motherland you Co- obviously like to ski k2 kt22 then. that that too yes not on a crowded days though uh, i haven't skied since i got injured unfortunately it's well different identity we uh we really appreciate you sitting down yeah, and talking you. with us and uh your book is incredible i'm for like great job yeah i thank thoroughly you. enjoyed great the book. job yeah. thank you i really Thanks appreciate that and thank you for sharing my story and uh yeah let's go right there you have it our interview with alenka vrecek v-r-e-c-e-k and her book she rides chasing dreams across california and mexico this book is a must read for all you adventure junkies out there or anyone looking for inspiration in the face of adversity and with the holidays coming up it makes a great gift course you can purchase it on amazon or wherever books are sold but if you live here in the tahoe area support local businesses and buy it at word after word in Truckee, in tahoe city at alpenglow or in south lake tahoe at cup of tahoe bookstore thanks again to alenka for sitting down with us today on episode 23 of mind the track and until next time get out there get deep and put your mind in the track. 